Welcome, everybody, to Dead Talk Live, and it is my honor tonight to have BJ McDonald with us. BJ, how you doing, man? I'm good. How you guys doing? We're doing good. It is our pleasure and honor to have you with us. Let's talk some Victor Crawley. That, okay, it's been man, a long time, but let's go. That's a beautiful face right there, man. That's a face only a mother can love. Oh, yeah. Well, yeah, I put her through a rough time. So, yeah, she, she still loved me. So, it's all good. <laughs> so, to, before we get started with that, how did you come across meeting Adam Green? Um, Basically, a friend of mine, uh, uh, um, friend Sarah Donahue, she was doing Hatchet, and she said that they were looking for a Steadicam camera operator guy. And she said, hey, come in and uh, interview and meet, you know, the crew. So, all right. So I did. I went in there and uh, basically just did an interview with the DP. I didn't meet Adam, um, you know, first. I just went in for an interview with the director of photography. And uh, we talked and his whole main questions were like, hey, you know, like, what kind of movies do you like? What's your favorite genre? That stuff, you know, kind of see what I was into. And I was like, well, you know, I was I'm a huge Nightmare on Elm Street fan. I'm a huge Clyde Barker fan. You know, I'm, I'm, you know, big on like the Halloween, you know, anything John Carpenter also like yeah. into that stuff. And so I guess while I was doing that, the, you know, Adam was behind uh, Will, the, the director of photography going, hire him, hire him. Because I think he was looking for someone that was actually going to be very excited about being in the, uh, you know, being a part of, uh, of a horror film like that. You know, it's more exciting when you have a crew member that yeah. actually has a love for the genre, you know, the genre and not just the paycheck. So that was it. And then I walked out and, and it was funny because I saw Adam, he was smoking a cigarette out and uh, I thought he was like a crew member. <laughs> I was like, hey man, how's it going? He's like, hey man. And I just, that was it. That was, so I guess I really didn't meet Adam. I just interviewed and then I got the job. Got the job. Go. Now this is, <laughs> you're talking about this is for Hatchet 2 where you were the Hatchet 1, one. the steady cam operator, right? The, the, the all operator. The, yeah. Mean, Basically, that whole that whole movie was almost shot on Steadicam because we didn't have, you know, we shot uh, in in basically the desert out yeah. here in California, and at night you can just throw moss up in trees, and it's like, hey, we're in Louisiana, you know, because uh, you can't really you don't have much detailed background because you know as soon as you start you're very limited, and if you have a very limited lighting package, you don't you can't really open up that world. It's just here's your set piece that you can kind of light because your your lighting is just you know limited. And you dress it to that. So that's how we did it. You know, we shot it over at a, a place called uh, Sable Ranch. And uh, yeah, I ran around with a steady cam and we shot a 35 millimeter film, which is no longer what they shoot no. many movies anymore. So that was kind of cool. Now it's all digital. Camera was like the heaviest camera you could actually get. <laughs> so for me, it was just like a brutal, like running up and down the forest all like, during all nights. And every morning I'd have to drive home and like, I drive to location, and where I live, it's about 45 minutes without traffic there. So I would have to leave it, like, you know, for a 6 o'clock call, like 2 o'clock to get Ooh. there. And because traffic was so bad. And then coming back in the mornings, I'd be hitting the people going, uh, you know, towards True, my house. Yeah, yeah. Oh, man, that does sound brutal. So how does it go from, uh, you know, meeting, get on, getting on the first hatchet, the camera, and then you getting your directorial debut in Hatchet 3. How did that all play out? Um, I mean, I don't know the, the, all the ins and outs really about, like, what the decision-making process was in that. I just know that, you know, I don't know if Adam really wanted to do Part 3 because I think Part 2 was kind of a rough deal with everything that went on. 
Um, and he just wasn't, wasn't pumped about it. So he had, you know, Adam had his whole, his whole thing going on and, you know, he came up to me, I was shooting a movie in Boston and he happened to be there and we just, you know, went and played some putt putt and, and had some milkshakes and <laughs> he's basically like, Hey man, because you've been a part of this team, you know, since Hatchet one and Hatchet two, you know, why don't you, you know, direct the third one? Cause he didn't, cause I want, I was trying to move into directing anyways. And so yeah. he's like be an awesome thing for you to get into so that was it i mean really I, I said okay you know as long as i could put my twist on it and that was my whole my whole thing you know and obviously it'd be adam's script and his whole yeah. thing but i wanted i wanted the look i wanted the look that i wanted to put with it i wanted it to be darker you know i wanted i wanted that hatchet to feel a little darker mm -hmm. uh you know visually i also wanted to expand the world a bit more than what we could do because in hatchet one we shot in the desert like i said hatchet two we shot on a soundstage with just, you know, we just moved, moved trees around, oh. you know, look different. And uh, obviously the daytime exteriors, we went to Louisiana and shot like, you know, a little bit there. Like, and then once you get in the swamp at night, it's all soundstage. Okay. I didn't know that. That's good information. So, I mean, all those years being a camera operator, what was it like for you to step behind the camera and direct? Did you find it hard to sort of stay in your lane as director and not tell, you know, get involved with the camera people? Or did you, you know, kind of get your fingers in in all places? I learned a lot of lessons on that one because, look, you know, as a camera guy also, I, I deal with the actors a lot, you know, so I, I'm comfortable talking to the actors, yeah. you know, so that was never a big thing for me. Uh, it was really hard to let go on the camera side of things because I, you know, if I wanted to do something I could, and it was hard to express like what I wanted to do, I'd just be like, uh, give me the camera real quick. And then I would do it, you know, and the budget was so low on that one. You know, it was, it was a very low budget that like I couldn't hire a Steadicam guy. So I actually, all the shots that a Steadicam, I just threw my rig on and did the Steadicam shots. And then, you know, then I'd have my buddies, you know, do the camera work and all that stuff. So it was a, it was a total thing. So I didn't exactly go hands off. All the steady cam shit was mine. Um, are we are we able to cuss on the show? By the yes, way? yes, absolutely. I, I, yes, I don't want to. Yeah. I don't want to offend. No, anybody, no. This so is the internet. I <laughs> no, 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 no. FCC, uh, you know, oversight here. You're good to go. Okay, good. Um, so yeah, that was it. I just, uh, you know, I would do the steady cam stuff just because I couldn't afford it an operator. Um, and plus, it, it's just easier for me to, to get what I want that way. But it's hard to actually operate a steady cam and focus exactly on like what the actors are saying. Exactly. So it, it was, maybe that was a learning process of like watching framing, watching my steps, watching what's going on, but also making sure that I'm getting the performance from the actors that that I needed. I it was hard for me to you know juggle that, but I've learned to get better with that over time. So. I, I watched Hatchet 3 again last night, you know, to refresh on it. And I got to say, it's this great blend of gore and humor. Uh, was that all in the writing or was that your directing, would you say? I mean, was it half writing, half your directing? It was just a beautiful balance between the really funny stuff in the movie to the kills yeah. themselves being really gory and bloody. You guys must have built a factory or something to make all that blood. I mean, damn. <laughs> it, was, it was it was really the same effects. You know, we had John Beekler on the first one. Um, and then we had Robert Pendergraft, who was, was with him on that. And then Rob took over, and he started his own, like, effects company, basically in his garage. 
So he was building just things in his garage to like do the effects. Um, and you know, we, we had a, we had a team there just basically with all the, all the blood rigs and, and all that, you know, my wife was also there. She was, she was helping out cause she's a makeup artist too. Uh-huh. Actually, she helped me out with so much stuff when we were down there prepping, like she even find, she found like the locations for us because honestly I didn't realize, you know, when I said we're going to do this all in new Orleans, um, you know, it's hard to, re- it's, it's hard to find dry land there, you know, like that you can shoot on. It looks dry, but you step on the, you know, step out there, it's really wet. Yeah. But, you know, and, and my wife, actually, she helped me find actually a property where we could actually build the sets and do all that stuff. So she was a huge help. But, you know, she was also the makeup artist there, the beauty makeup, but she jumped in on the core stuff also. So we had a, we had a, a lot of hands to, uh, to do the spring blood pumps and all that good stuff. So, you know, I, I felt good about all that. So was that like, uh, you know, uh, homage to, I don't know, Tarantino and kill bill with the blood spurting out whenever a limb is torn off or something like that? Well, you got to realize those movies are very silly, you know? And if, if you, if you, if you try to make it too serious, you know, like, or like too realistic, it kind of, in my opinion, kind of loses the fun out of it. So it if you're going to make a silly script, you know, and a silly creature, when you're killing these people, it should be like completely over the top, like yeah. just ridiculous, like so much fun. You know, I always, I always compare it to like, you know, you're doing something like that. You want it to be a roller coaster ride and just make it like so over the top. It's insane. I mean, even Hatchet One was so over the top when we did that stuff. You know, yeah, I, but- I, I drove home covered in blood <laughs> all the time. I saw the gas stations covered in fake blood. People look at me that didn't know, you know, that don't work in the film business. They'd be like, you know, where'd you come from? Yeah. Who's in your truck? You know, I I think where a lot of movies go wrong, where they try to uh, put the humor in a horror movie is they try to stay too serious. Like you just explained, you got to have some fun. Right. And that's why I think, you know, hatchet three, it was a great balance between, the gory Thanks. kill scenes and the really funny ass humor in the movie. Um, you know, the funniest part for me is when they go to that guy's house, uh, looking oh, for the ash. Yeah. Looking for the ashes. That yeah. for me, that was hysterical. Uh, I love that part. Uh, what was the most fun you had shooting and directing hatchet three, which scene, which sequence did you like the most? God, it's weird. It, 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 there was a very big mixture of frustration and and fun because of the timing that you had to make this movie. I mean, we had no time. We had no money. And we shot like the worst time where we had short nights, you know. So it's like as soon as the sun went down, we had all these people to kill and all the stuff to do. You know, it was really hard. But I mean, honestly, whenever we do any of the kills, I, I would say that's the most fun because it's just, it's hilarious. <laughs> it was like, you know, or, or even just like, my whole thing was I wanted to have like a lot of real gunfire in it, you know, like not real gunfire, but like squibs and blanks yeah, and stuff like yeah. that, because I wanted it to feel like, you know, like a bigger movie, even though the budget was smaller than the first two. Um, and so we really like, I wanted it to, you know, I just wanted it to feel bigger. I wanted to have the realism of the guns and the actors being able to fire the guns and really react to the, you know, the guns going off and instead of like adding like CGI flashes exactly. and blanks all through that place. And the whole, the whole shed was like covered in squibs. You know, so when they're blowing away that that shed, we're just the whole thing's just going up, you know. And I also wanted to, you know, I was so happy about like blowing up the the, the house. That was like that was my thing. I was like, I want to blow the house up. I want to destroy it because nothing looks cooler than 
you know, people who are like or monsters that are backlit by fire. Exactly. Was, I like I wanted that. That was my that that's probably my favorite shot of Kane is when he looks back and you see the fire behind him and all that stuff. And, and the rest of the movie how it's just lit by fire. It's like I, I love how that is. Um, I mean, it's, it's hard to tell what the most fun part of that was. It was, you know, I think maybe the most fun part of that was just like probably, I'd say the weekend's blown off steam with the crew, you know, with like, you know, the, the people I had with me, you know, especially the people I brought along. Um, that was the most fun, in my opinion, was like just Kicking letting off back. some steam and, yeah. and then, you know, before we had to go back into the suck. Yeah, gotcha. <laughs> now, I mean, Kane, who played Victor Crawley, Kane Hodder, he looked like he must have had a lot of fun, you know, all bulked up. I mean, he's a big guy like you to begin with, right? Kane Hodder is this huge hulking man. I, I met him back in the 90s. And then, yes, you put, and then you put on this, you know, Victor Crawley suit over that. And not only yeah. that, you had Derek Mears in the movie as well, who I think also portrayed Jason Voorhees as yeah. well as Kane Hodder. The, yeah, I mean, it, it looks like you guys just had a blast while you were shooting and behind the scenes as well. Did you? Yeah, I mean, it was it was a lot of fun. You know, it, it was funny because like when you put all that stuff on Kane, it actually it slowed him down wow. because the, that makeup it's it was this was the one the first time they actually used silicone um, compared to just using a latex mask. Okay. You know, and the reason why Victor Crowley looks so good in the third one is because the facial movements and everything are silicone, so it looks like real skin. Yeah. You know, it's not so it's not so fake looking. Um, not not saying it was bad in the other ones, which is again, you go back to the hey, this is what we're making. You yeah. know, we're making that throwback kind of thing. But it, uh, I like the 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 way we had Crowley look in this one a lot because it was just he looked more like a real creature. Yeah. You know, which and it's the silicone, but that also put a lot of weight on Kane. And, and it was hard, you know, towards the end of the night, you know, we weren't on solid ground, we were on muddy ground that whole time. You, uh -huh. You're just eat his shit when you get done. So, you know, he was a trooper. You yeah, know, it, it sounds like a trooper. Those, <laughs> those sound like some pretty harsh conditions. Uh, now, those are the worst conditions, the worst. Now, let's talk about Danielle Harris, okay, who plays Mary Beth. Now, Danielle Harris took over the role in the second Hatchet movie. Uh, do you know why the original actress who played Mary Beth did not do the second or the third Hatchet movies? I know Adam asked her to do it um, whenever that was it's, uh, Tamara. I remember he asked her to do it, and I don't know what was going on at the time, but, you know, it's hard for me to say if I can't even say, like, what was going on, but, like, I think it was an agent thing. She was starting to do other things, and yeah. I think they were asking for, like, too much money, and I think that I think that you know it was a it was a whole just it was a deal like that like okay. there was, it was just it was it was something like that where it's just too much money I think she you know the agent was trying to like get part of the franchise that Adam had created oh, which was it wasn't even a franchise yet but it was yeah. you know and besides you know Danielle Harris she was awesome you mm -hmm. know she was awesome as Mary Beth you know. Uh, getting teased as poor white trash and being mm -hmm. that tough girl, you know, you know, fuck you, you know, yeah. <laughs> go fuck yourself. Yeah. I, I mean, that was, that was hysterical. And, you know, for a no budget movie that you just described, you had a really good cast to work with. Yeah. Well, and that's, that's the thing with the horror people, you know, like a lot of the horror actors, you can get a lot of them to come out and, and do these roles because they also love what you're doing. 
Um, and, you know, when they know something's going to be seen or it's getting somewhat of a fan base, you know, it's, it's easier to get people you know, like on board, especially if there's a, you know, especially if you already have some that's already been, you know, like hatchet one was already out, people were digging it, you know, and then it just is, it's all exposure and, and another, you know, good job for people, you know, at that point. So that's, that's, I think that's kind of how we get those people, you know, yeah. and also it's friends. Exactly. You know? And they all show their enthusiasm for the genre. Yeah. Because I had met Derek like way before any of this stuff. Because I did MacGruber, um, and I met him on that. Because he had a little bit part on that. So I was like, and I was all super excited to meet him because I knew that he was the new Jason Voorhees. And, yeah. And uh, you know, and he's just a lovely guy. Like the guy, he's he's like the nicest guy in the world. Even though he looks like he would rip your head off. <laughs> um, Jason Trost, who is the sheriff of the Eye Patch, that everybody's, you know, he's he's a good buddy of mine. Um, which I actually later on brought him on to do a bunch of Slayer things that I did, you know, and I, mean, I love him. He's like, he's the best. He's like a true talent. Um, I met Danielle, you know, with, with, you know, basically, I think I want to say the Halloween movies. Yeah. You know, Rob Zombie, because I, I think that's where I first met Danielle, I think. Maybe, I, I think so, yeah. I think that it was, was 2006, 2000, and, well, 2007 is when the first Rob Zombie Halloween movie came out. Yeah, but we shot that like way before. Okay. Um, and so, and, and I, you know, around, I mean, I can't, my timelines are all messed up. So forgive, well, me, forgive me those who look on and, and look at dates, but I'm pretty sure that I met, I met her on Halloween one. It's, yeah. it's like yeah. first time. Yeah. I mean, you have worked on some amazing movies uh, and I think you're the perfect person to ask. Like you directed what you describe as a no budget film in Hatchet 3 but you have been on the set as a camera operator for like Maverick, which is yet to be released, uh, as well as some other big budget, uh, The Conjuring, uh, big budget films. Well, I mean, I, I always love asking this question, going from a no low budget film to going to a studio project that has tens of millions of dollars invested in it. What is the biggest difference that, I mean, besides, you know, having a person for every little task, what is the first thing that pops out at you? My main thing, and also as being a director, is I feel like the, the, you know, doing bigger movies like that, it's the time you get to do it. When you're doing a no budget film, you don't have any time. And if you, if you don't make a day and you have to try to figure out how to get the rest of that scene done, when you're on like a schedule where they, they can't just add days, because yeah. you add days, you, that's adding money, you know? And, and usually low budget movies are so planned out to the T, like you have to get those things done, you know, with a little contingency plan if you're lucky. Um, the best thing you have on the bigger budget movies is the time schedule, the, the amount of time you get to shoot sequences, you know, like, I mean, for for instance, like the the first Jack Reacher, we did that movie, and we have there's a bathroom fight, a fight in a bathroom, yeah, with two guys against Tom Cruise, and I think we shot that fight sequence for four days, Ooh. for like a little piece of the movie. I mean, it's like that kind of, it's like that, like okay, time is your worst enemy as a director. It's it's watching the clock and trying to make sure you get everything you you can get, and also making sure you're getting the performances you need. And make sure you get the camera moves and like the cool shots and things like that. It's like, you're, in my opinion, I think the worst enemy is the time schedule. Okay. That's 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 the that's the biggest difference I see. Obviously, on bigger movies, you get the bigger toys that make the shots look cooler. You get the techno cranes, you get the cable cams, you get all the cool stuff. 
Um, and when you're doing low-budget movies, you're just like, oh, Christ, I hope this works. <laughs> now, you have worked with uh, Tom Cruise, like you said, in Jack Reacher, in Maverick. Uh, so you've probably been up close, you know, face-to-face with him with that Steadicam. I mean, oh, yeah. what, what's he like to work with? We hear he's very professional on the set. He's, you know, knows, I mean, obviously he's been doing it forever. What would be your description of his work, his work ethic? Tom is, 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 is all pro, you know, he's, he's very awesome to work with. You know, you can count on him hitting his marks, you know, everything he does, he wants to make sure it's done like totally right. Like, like it's, it's planned and, and he expects the crew to be there. He expects the people to get the shots to make sure it goes smoothly to go, you know, He's very professional, and uh, you know, you're working with him. You just have to be on your A game, you know, to to make sure you're getting what he wants and what the director wants and things like that. So that's the one thing with working with Tom. But he's, you know, I love the guy. I think he's rad. You know, he's he's in my opinion the last great actor oh. because he's. I mean, he he, he can, can do anything. Plot. He can do anything. I mean, what other actors do you know that actually can do all this stuff? Exactly. I mean, everything. Like, I mean, look. I love the John Wick movies, and Keanu Reeves is rad, and he's kicking ass with the gun stuff, and that's so impressive. But you go, okay, well, here's Tom Cruise. He's flying his own plane, or he's flying his own helicopter. There was moments when on Jack Reacher, where we, me and my buddy Tommy in the AC, we were in the back of that that car when he was driving through Pittsburgh, and like, it, you know, he's basically like, "Strap in, guys, here we go," and he just crank it, and we were going through traffic and zipping. It was awesome, and he's because he's a precision stunt, stunt driver. Precision stunt driver. Sorry, I, I tripped over my words. Um, but that's the cool thing with him. But I do, I, I, I think he's really the last of the best. You know, he's you can't, you can't find another person that has the amount of talent that he has. You know, acting wise, and also everything that he does, the stunts, all that stuff. He's rad. So that's all. And there's no slowing down in him. No signs of slowing down. He's just gonna keep on going. You know, it's like he's, he's going to space. He's going to space. They're about to go to space to do a movie. And I'll, I'll, I'll say it right here. Sign me up. I'll get in the rocket. Let's go. So, Steady Cam. Now, we had uh, uh, Russell Todd on our show. Uh, that's my agent. That's your agent. And he told us yeah. the whole story on how he be he formed uh, because Steady Cam operators had no representation. No. Yeah, and he's the one that started yes. it, and he has like fifty guys. Uh, so, what's it like uh, having a rep like you know, like Russell, and him, you know, being there, getting you guys work and whatnot? Russell's awesome. Um, Russell is like, to me, I feel like Russell's like my my clip in my gun. He uh, he's he's. You know, I usually get, I'll get a call from production or I'll get a call from the director of photography or whatever, do a movie or whatever. And I'm like, okay, yeah, you know, we'll talk to my agent. Because the great thing about having the agent is that you just, you don't have to deal with yeah. like, you know, awful, like trying to negotiate rates or trying to, to get, you know, to deal with the money side of things. Um, Russell, when, when I let him go, he really, you know, he gets like killer rates for the jobs, things that I would feel criminal doing. You know, and then also if I if something's not going right, I I don't have to go up and be the bad guy. Russell's my bad guy. He's like <laughs> he's like my uh, little Joe Pesci. Uh, so, 
I just feel like, hey, Russell, so-and-so is not doing this. They didn't give me this up, blah, blah, blah. Okay, I'll take care of it. Boop. And the next thing I know, it's being handled. Well, that was... And that's the great thing about having him, you know, like doing that. Because when you're first starting off, you're always, you're the, you're the guy negotiating with producers. Mm-hmm. And honestly, I mean, I, I'll tell you in the beginning of my career, I guarantee I, I, I got took so many times on certain things and for budgets and rates and stuff like that. That was just like, you know, trying to get a job or we're just making sure I, you know, I, when yeah. you're hungry and you're trying to make a name for yourself, you know, you take crappy rates when you first start. And I, yeah. and I started, you know, I started out just trying to get my name out there and getting more footage for my reel. But then getting Russell was like, it really helped me out with, you know, getting, getting the proper rates and proper amounts that you're worth. Yeah. When he was on here and he was telling us the story, it just sounded like he did such a great thing by providing a service that was not there really before. No. And there's what? not a lot of steady cam agents. There's not. There's him and there's Wendy Schneider. Yeah. Those are like the top two. And and you know, I mean, maybe there's more now. I don't know. But like when I when I got with Russell, it was two. It was wow. him and Wendy. Yeah. Now, now Hollywood is a very unionized industry. You've got, of course, the Screen Actors Guild, the Directors Guild, the producers. Is there a, a guild for camera operators in Hollywood? <laughs> yeah. It's a uh, yeah. I'm 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 in I'm in three guilds. I'm in the Directors Guild. I'm in SAG, uh, the Screen Actors Guild, and uh, the Camera Guild is Local 600, IASI. uh, And so all the locals, you know, for the film industry, they're all under IASI, what, you know, like 728s, the electricians, local 80s, the grips. Local 600 is camera operators, directors of photography, camera ACs, still photographers. So, so yeah, there's, yeah, there's definitely a union for that. So everybody's covered, except the PAs. Yeah, I know. Oh, hopefully, hopefully with these new contract negotiations, maybe they'll get more of a you know get a, more of a bone thrown to them. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> the hardest working people on sets with the with the most unthankful job. Exactly. Thank God we have them. Exactly. Absolutely. Totally agree with you there. Now, how did you get involved with the Conjuring universe? So I started off. I, I got a call from Maxime Alexandra. Um, and he called me to do Annabelle uh, 2. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I ended up doing that with those guys, which then I started getting calls for like, you know, Maxime, he shot The Nun, but then he was doing something else and they had to do reshoots of The Nun. So then I got called to go do the reshoots of The Nun. So I did the reshoots. Um, and then the DP of that, Michael Burgess, who's awesome, um, he ended up doing Annabelle 3. So I jumped onto that. And then uh, we ended up doing another James Wan movie that's coming out. It hasn't come out yet called Malignant, which is it's going to be awesome. Um, and then uh, I did – oh, I, sorry. Before the Annabelle 3, I met Mike Burgess on um, La La Rona, The Curse of La La Rona. Oh, good movie. And so then I did that, the reshoots of that. I didn't do the whole movie. I just did the, the opening and the ending and, and a couple stuff in between. And then I did the Annabelle 3. And then we did the James Wan thing. And then we did Conjuring. Um Conjuring 3. What do you think as a fan of the Conjuring universe, Annabelle, the nun, the whole nine yards? What do you, I'm a big fan of the Conjuring universe. I think the whole universe is just an awesome story. Like, I mean, it was so simple that basically, especially taking like the Warren story, Mm -hmm. you know, it's like, it's a great concept. You take these people that claim they had like done all these things. They have a, basically a raggedy Ann doll. It's Annabelle, you know, saying this doll's like super cursed and it's locked up and, you know, you James is good about finding those kind of stories, you know, and, and, and I think what he created there was just something that's like mystical, but also like you can read about it, you know, it's, it's you can actually, 
see that these are actually real things that people claim really happen. Yeah. You know, not so much the not so much the movies that we build, but the 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 situations or the storylines around them. You know, exactly. the whole Annabelle doll thing is like got a whole mystery behind it, and the Conjuring of the Warren stuff. You know, it's it's very uh. It's just really interesting. I think it, it's like a no-brainer. And you know, as, as smart as, as James is, he jumped on there and saw a really awesome thing and started. Oh, yeah. to, now, and, James, and James Wan. I mean, you know, having a success with one franchise, okay, somebody might have stepped back into it, but movie after movie, especially in the paranormal realm, I mean, he's just spot on and great. With that yeah. subgenre, um, he knows you... how to scare. He knows the right. He knows the right timing for the actual scares. And, so and, and that... watching James work has been a, like the the thing for me is as a director also is that the, the best schooling that I can honestly get is being on set with multiple directors because okay. I learn the good things. I also learn some bad things. I can watch the, the mistakes. I can watch the wins and like working with James was, it's actually very interesting because I get to watch like, how, you know, get to see how he works and how he'll come up or he'll watch something. And if it's not working, he'll figure it out and he'll change it. And then voila, you got it. He's the master of actually knowing the right timing of scaring people. So that's what you, know? you would say is his secret, knowing exactly when to pull that scare trigger. I think for the horror stuff, it's he, he's very good at that. You know, mm -hmm. I think he knows exactly when to do that. Plus, he's just a great director overall. Like, he's really great with the cast. You know, his stories are awesome. Um, you know, he's very much knows what he wants, and it's 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 really awesome to watch him work. You know, I've tried to take some of some of his stuff with me a little bit. And <laughs> I would love. I would love that to works out. I would love to talk to James. I mean, like he's done Insidious. Of course, he's done yeah. The Conjuring. Just. Uh, Knowing him, would you say that because that's where his success lies is in the paranormal subgenre? Having met the guy, knowing him, would you say that's where his passion is? Is in the the ghost stories, the paranormal, the supernatural? I think, it, it, I think he, you know, he, I, I can't, I can't answer for James honestly, yeah. but like I, I think that honestly, he, you know, he got started with the horror thing with Saw, you know, and like that was an amazing. Yeah. Like very and, and that movie when they did it was a low budget film. It was. You know, all shot this really this one basically this one location um called Lacey Street where they used to shoot Cagney and Lacey. Yes. Um and, and all those sets are these different like like it's funny because whenever I go whenever I've gone there and I haven't been there in a while, but when you go there you see exactly every room, the whole the freezer room, you see the loft that they lived in, it's all right there. Yeah. Um, and he, he just told a really good story with a very twisted ending where you just go, Whoa, that ending. You know, so I think that he gets, you know, yeah, I think he definitely has a heart for the death, you know, the, the genre kind of stuff for sure. But I also think that the action things and the superhero stuff, I think he loves that too. You know, he's yeah. also we always talk about video games. He's a he's a video gamer too, just like me and my wife. So we we get together. I'm like, did you play the new Assassin's Creed? He's like, oh, I did. Yeah, I love, you know, like so. We we'll, we'll talk video games a lot when we're on set. <laughs> now, as a director, let me ask you. You know, yeah, big budgets are great. They give you time. You don't have to stress about getting everything done in like X amount of days. But to really make a good good movie, and we there have been some gems that have come out there, no to low budget. Uh, you need a good story first off. You yep. need good acting. And, yeah, having that extra money is great. You can add the CGI. You can invest in the special effects. 
But bottom line, you need a good story, good acting, good directing. Do you agree with that? I always think that you got to have a good story first. Yeah. You know, I, I think that you really have to have that. Um, that's that, that's the most important for, for a good movie, you know. And there's one thing about having a low-budget kind of movie. The one thing I will say about doing that is that you have to figure it out, you know. You have to figure out, ex like, how to get it done. You have to figure out how to execute things with the little money that you have. You know, so you actually get a little bit more creative in the pre-production, you know, thinking about how am I going to do this? How How is this one shot that I'm trying to do going to actually work out? You know, like, yeah. what am I going to have to do, you know? And nowadays, it's kind of easy to do some stuff like shooting plates and, like, you know, editing's gotten easier and, like, being able to, like, you know, shoot a plate and put someone over here that's not there at the time or things like that. You know, you have to start getting really creative yeah. when it comes to that. And then at the end, at, at the end, like, you know, my buddy Marcus Dunstan, we always talk about it, and, and we, we always end up shooting, like, inserts in our garages, you know, like, literally, like, like I, I think the collector movies that we did, uh, we shot, shot in his garage, shot inserts, the close of the latches of the case, you know, like, masks going on, yeah. things like, you know, like, look, you shoot in your garage Jeez. to get these shots that you need, because, you know, you didn't have the time to do it. Or you just didn't get it because you're moving so fast, or what, or whatnot. You in, you have to get creative. Exactly, exactly. Do you? Have I just shot a whole teaser in my garage for a thing I'm trying to get off the ground. Like <laughs> me and my buddy, we just got together and jumped in my garage, and I wrote all these different shots that we're going to do, and we're editing that together now. So it's like you, you just have to get creative. Creative, exactly. That's that's the that's the bottom line. Creative. Now, do you have a special affinity? for uh independent films uh guys being creative and coming up with something really a, a great final product at the end if i know that it was something very low budget and i see someone accomplish something pretty amazing i applaud that like because it's very hard to do you know i say like any the things that i've done or like just like being able to work on the bigger budget movies and then being able to work on the smaller budget movies you can see how a bigger thing was accomplished but then you can kind of go, okay, but you could also maybe do that with this little teeny thing. Or like, you know, you kind of learn a little bit more of that process just by watching like what it really takes. Okay. You know? So I, I, you know, it's pretty interesting. And, and, and also knowing, yeah, like I can do this later on if I just shoot this one thing and then I can shoot this other thing later and just like paste it in there, you know, like with VFX. Because VFX has gotten better. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Much Big better. Time. Much better. Yeah. Now, a, a viewer just asked this, and I'm going to pass it on to you because it's a great question. If okay. you had the choice to reboot any movie that you grew up with or like loved watching, what movie would you redo as a director, like behind the camera? As a director behind the camera, to redo or reboot, I'm trying to get like a really off, off, like off. A very off answer of a movie. I mean, deep down, I'd love to do an Escape from New York. Ooh. You know, that's what I would love to do that because I just that, like when I was in kindergarten, my mom would let me watch those movies, which is probably an awful parenting technique. Taking but, out John Carpenter there. Oh yeah, I mean that's that's you know I love those movies. Um, geez, that's a that's a tough that's a really tough question. You know, like maybe Terror Vision. <laughs> oh god yeah there have been i mean there have been like so many great movies uh i don't even know if you've heard this one uh jamie lee curtis during her scream queen days which she still is a scream queen she was in a movie called terror train 
And yeah. I absolutely love that movie, but most people have never even heard of it. Uh, yeah. But it's those kind of movies. Then you got like John Carpenter with The Fog. Uh, yeah, The Fog is awesome. I mean, it, it, it's brilliant. John Carpenter is like uh, what James Wan is today. You know, you yeah. know, James Wan is on his way to becoming like a John Carpenter. He's not there yet because John Carpenter is legendary. But I don't know, man. I think, I think James has gotten pretty. Pretty, pretty big for, for like the amount of time he's been around. I mean, he that guy's success story is pretty It's like impressive. one after the other, one after the other. Yeah, and it's awesome too because, you know, I also got to say he's an awesome guy. Yeah. Like a, like a lovely dude, like super nice. And I love watching when the good ones succeed. Yeah. There's been plenty of, of bad ones that have succeeded <laughs> that I've been around also. I won't mention names, but... You're just like, so like, keep going. <laughs> yeah. So take us back, all right? How did you start out? What was your, how did you get into the, you know, camera operator directing? Did you have, like, growing up an affinity for, you know, making stuff, recording with a camcorder? How'd you get into yeah. it? So basically, when I was a little kid, my grandfather was a Hollywood actor. Um, mm. His name was Life Erickson. He did On the Waterfront. He did a, he had a TV show called High Chaparral. He was, he was the dad in the first black and white Invaders from Mars that smacks the kid across the room. Wow. Um, yeah. So, and so he did like all these films. So as a kid, I used to go to like some of these little sets like over in old Tucson where they did High Chaparral. He would walk me around and it kind of sparked my interest in making movies. Um, so as, and then me and my friends started pulling out the old VCR cameras, you know, like, like, you probably remember, like, oh, yeah. I don't know how old you are, but I mean, Christ, I feel like I'm aging myself here. But, like, you would put the VCR in a backpack with the camera, with the cable, and, like, a motorcycle battery that would just power the thing up, and you're running around making, like, these movies in your backyard, and yeah. just you and your buddy beat the crap out of each other, some terrible concept. And I fell in love with just doing that. It started becoming kind of, like, a major passion for me that, like, it was just, like, that's all I wanted to do was, like, start making these little short films. So I did that, like, all when I was really, really young, and and coming up and then I ended up you know kind of stopping doing that and I started I, I was in a punk band and I started touring and tried to become kind of a, a punk rocker hoping, like thinking the money could have been there so for five years the I next, I gave, uh, the I next Kurt Cobain oh my god <laughs> well I, I don't want to end up like that but no 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 <laughs> but uh but I, I I toured with the punk band for like good five to six years and uh when that kind of fizzled out i just didn't have any i didn't know what i was going to do and this is all i grew up in florida um so i was just kind of stuck i was like i don't know you know what am i going to do I, the only other thing i like to do is like movies and my buddy jason uh that was in another punk band he ended up marrying a, a girl who got him in the film business in richmond virginia and they said they were going to move to los angeles and i said hey, i'm going to move to los angeles and go to film school so i went to film school uh los angeles city college and then when i got out i went right into being a grip because that's what my friend was. Yep. And then I started learning set etiquette and I got way more into it again. Like, oh, this is what I want to do. And oh my God, I can actually make money like doing this. You know, it's, you know, and you're, you're the thing of the film industry is you're, you're your own boss. You, yeah. you, you get your jobs, you take the jobs and you can take as long a time off as you want and then come back and get the next job. It's kind of an awesome career. So that got me, you know, once I got done with the punk band, I went to school, got, wanted to get back into directing and then, I fell in love with camera operating, which took me away from what I came out here to do, and uh, which I'm so glad I did it because it taught me so much. And mm -hmm. you know, I went full bore camera operator for like 
a while. Yeah. And then I just said, you know what, I'm going to, I want to direct again. And that's where it's all, it all started happening. So, you know, I'm still doing both right now. And you have a very impressive resume. Now tell us what, I mean, a steady cam operator, when Russell was on, he explained it to us, right? Uh, hydraulically controlled. It's as if the camera is on a tripod, even though it's not. It, you're holding it. Well, we're the tripod. Yeah. <laughs> we, we, we become the physical tripod, but yes. It's, now, it's like a... Oh, go ahead. No, I was just going to ask, uh, when, like, what type of scenes require a steady cam? Is it the real up close? Is it a particular kind of scene that you would go from a camera that is on a tripod to a steady cam. Well, I mean, look at the shining. Oh, you yeah. know, when the camera's free to go wherever it wants, it's it's now it's you're you're a part of this person. This is your vision. You're seeing what's what's happening. You're going with it. You know, I think, you know, that was like that blew everybody away when they did that. When, when people saw the shining, just the mm -hmm. way the camera just keep on going, and you know, it was, it, it was so smooth. It wasn't handheld. Um, you know, with the steady cam stuff, what, what usually it becomes walk and talks of people talking. It becomes a technical shot that, like, look at all the Scorsese films, like the yeah. Goodfellas stuff. You know, the Boogie Nights opening where it's going through the club and mm -hmm. all that. Like, when you can choreograph a really beautiful shot and tell a story of all these different bits and pieces that interconnect with each other, and basically ending with like a final actor or something like that. That's where the steady cam kind of becomes like the be the, the best tool. Yeah. You know, like that's that's usually the best the best use of it. Now, going back to the hatchet thing, because we couldn't afford a dolly, but they could afford me and, you know, my steady cam rig, that's another use of it right there. Because we're shooting in the woods, there's no time to lay dolly track, and I throw the rig on and we can make beautifully choreographed shots moving all through the forest, you know, and it, and you move fast. That's the other side of it. You know, low, a lot of low budget movies love the steady cam if they can get an operator to take the rig. So yeah. hold on a second. So Steadicam operators actually own their own rigs? Yeah, that's, that's the main thing. Is, as a Steadicam, you own your own Steadicam rig because going back to the, the money aspect of it, you rent that also. So, so as a camera operator also, in a union contract or whatever, I make a certain amount of money that is negotiated through Russell Todd. Yeah. Usually because I'm going to be getting the crap beat out of me wearing a Steadicam rig, I get a higher rate. He'll negotiate higher rates than what the union rates usually are because it's I'm I'm getting beat up. Yeah, yeah. Um, so you make a certain rate with the union, and then you basically will rent your Steadicam rig for per week, like with a three day cap. So you make rental money, and that's where you that's where the money is. Rentals wow. in this business for anyone that's aspiring to get into the film business, I'm telling you right now, <laughs> rentals. Rentals. <laughs> now how is much? I'm not talking about buying cameras. I'm talking about like. You know, people have cranes, they rent, they, 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 it's crazy. Remote heads, the Steadicam is a killer, killer rental. Absolutely. Um, and, and it's taken me all over the world. And it's it's been the best tool ever, you know. I've lost an inch of height, but that's cool. <laughs> <laughs> How important would you say was film school, for example, in your career? Did you leave film school and say, you know what? all right, I might have learned here something here and there, but at the end of the day, we all know we're adults. It's getting out there. It's the real world experience. I'm not dissuading anybody from going to school here. I just want to get your take. How important was film school to you, to what you're doing now? If I would have known 
what I know now, I would not have gone to film school as okay. to where I wanted to be. Because in my opinion, it's kind of a waste of money. Yeah. Um, I should have took that money and I should have put it towards like a short film and put it in festivals. Um, but that's not saying it's not, it, it's not, I'm not swaying anyone from film school. But no. if you want to be a crew member on a set, my opinion is just meet some people, get in there, PA, learn the road because the best knowledge, while you also are going to end up getting paid sooner than later, yeah. is getting that set knowledge and meeting the people because it's all about the communication and the people that you meet. It's all about, yeah. you know, like, connections. It's the connections. So, but if say you want to be a producer or say you want to learn how to do editing, you know, like you, you, the computer aspects of that, sure, you can go meet an editor and do that, but it's kind of hard to meet just an editor if you don't know where to go. Yeah. Um, I think those, that might be important film school stuff where you learn the legalities of the contracts and, and, and that kind of side. But I, in my opinion, and this is just my opinion, I don't expect anyone to say, well, you said DJ, you know. I would say go work, go find, go get on a set. I agree. It's the, it's the fastest and easiest way to get yourself going. And then you can actually, you can start out doing whatever and you can go, you know what? I really think that that, you know, doing props is cool, you know, yeah. or, Hey, I really think that the, what the grips are doing is cool. I think I want to try that. And you meet the grips and they go, yeah, the next job will bring you on board, blah, blah. And you go, and, I mean, that's really the best part about this business is you don't have to get locked into doing just one thing. You can be a craftsman at a bunch of different stuff. I mean, that's for me, it's like, I direct and I operate. I love it. And, and I don't care. Like, either one. I'm yeah. happy to get both. It's like the best job in the world. Do you both remember the first professional set you ever stepped foot on? The first professional set? The Well, a lot of the sets I started off on were very low budget. They weren't, the, like, the best or professional. Look, they were doing cool stuff, but, like, it wasn't very professionally run. There was a movie that had Lou Diamond Phillips in it okay. that was, like, for me, that was like, oh, wow. You know, it's Blue Diamond Phillips, Young Guns. I was so excited. He was so cool, like, so nice to work with him. So that one was like my first union movie that my buddies got me on that actually, they got me on before the movie flipped Union. Uh -huh. So say you're non-union and you get your name with the production, you fill out your paperwork and the movie flips Union, you got to get a certain amount of days to join the union. Yeah, I know, yeah. Uh, so my buddies got me on this job at Flip Union. I got my 30 days, and, and that was basically my first real professional movie. It wasn't a huge budget either, no. but it was a union movie, like a low-budget union movie, and we did things the right way, and it was a great learning experience. Well, were, you a, uh, were you a camera operator on that set? I was a grip. A grip. And for people who don't know, yeah, for people who don't know, Grips are, they're like, you know, people might think, oh, they're the ones who hold the boom. No, grips are the electrical backbone of a set, correct? Not the electrical backbone, because that's the electricians and the gaffer. That's the uh, gaffer, that's right. Uh, gaffer and the electrics, the electricians, those, that's the electrical backbone. Okay. The grips are basically like the Navy SEALs of of, of filmmaking. They, they're, they're like the guys that have, like, they do everything. They push the dolly with the yeah. camera operators on it. They control the booms, ups and downs. They shape the light, that, so like the, the gaffer sets a light. They end up putting the diffusions. They shape the shadows. Anytime you see any cool shafty shadow lights in movies, that's all the grips. Yeah. They make all that stuff. You know, it's the electricians too. They're setting the lights, but like the shaping of lights are like, you know, the, that that cool bit. That the grips do all that. The grips also rig all the all the truss work, all the big stage stuff you need. They, I mean, they're like seriously. 
Yeah. Movies would never get done if he didn't have grips because they're oh, like, yeah. There's like so I many... said, the Navy SEALs yeah. of the grip world. <laughs> There's so many elements that go into making a TV show or a film. Like, let me ask you your opinion. You're a director. Uh, people ask, why do you need a director of photography when you have a director? Uh, and I've told him, well, a director of photography is the person who sets up the cinematography to achieve the director's vision. Like, yep. who was your DP for Hatchet 3? My DP was the same DP, uh, Will Barrett, that did that did the first um, the first one. Um, and then my second unit DP was my friend Eric Leach, who has also gone on to do all the other things that I've done, like the Slayer music videos. And yeah. There's some other stuff that's coming out soon, but I can't talk about it. Um, so how and, important would you say a DP is to uh, a, a production? I think it's like vital to yeah. me. It's vital to have a director of photography because the director, I want, I want to work with the actors and get the performance that I want. Also, you know, you, once you, you, you get time to work with your actors, it's really great to work with the DP. Like, you know, you rehearse the scene, you send your guys back. And even in, in pre-pro, you work with the looks or the ideas you have, and then you let them take care of that. Because honestly, you know, it's great to be like, I'm a one-man band. I can do it all. Whatever. Good. You want to stress yourself out on a set? Go ahead, man. Like, you do that. That's game on. You know, yeah. there's there's a Robert Rodriguez, and he's impressive, and I do love his stuff. But you know what? Like, for me, I say surround yourself with the most awesome people you can put around you. That is how you make, that's how you do it because you get those people on a set with you. They're just going to make you shine. Yeah. And then you can also concentrate on the directing aspect of it and all that. Not so much like, all right, I got my actors ready. Now I got to figure out how I'm going to do this shot. I mean, your days would last forever if you didn't have that. So the director of photography is the one that's like really in charge of the look. Exactly. The look that you're going for that you guys talk about in pre-pro. And the scenes you work out and like going to locations and talking about, I want a crane over here for this one shot that I really want, you know, or the steady cam going through the house, blah, blah, blah. Okay, great. So now that you know there's a steady cam that's going to have to go through the house, well, shit, I got to light this thing. Yeah. If the steady cam's going through a house, you got to hide all the lights. Yeah. Or you, you have to figure that out. So do you really want to sit there and be the director slash, I got to figure out where all the lights are. And also, uh oh, my day's going away. Oh, shit. You know, or do you want to be able to concentrate on what you want to do while you have the people around you that are going to really already pre-pro the exactly. shot and figure it out and make you look like a fucking rock star? <laughs> exactly. Right on. And that's what a lot of people don't realize. And that was me several years ago. People, as they're leaving the theater, watching the credits and they see all these names and they're like, why are so many people involved in making this 90 minute film? And they just don't understand the logistics that go behind it. Now, moving forward in your career, uh, you want to get more, more involved with directing, uh, and sort of move away from the steady cam camera operator, or do you want an equal split of both of them? Do both continue doing both. I look, Doing full-time directing would be amazing, you know, but I actually still love doing the camera operating too. You know, I, it's, it's hard for me to give that up because the camera operating job for me now, is just a simple, I walk in, I do my shit. It's become like riding a tricycle, you know, like, yeah. you know, a bicycle, sorry, or maybe a tricycle. <laughs> you need three wheels and you've lost height from where it's steady camera. Um, it, you know, it just depends on what comes, you know, I'm, I'm happy either way. Like I love both things. It's just, you know, whatever I'm, I'm happy. I just, that, you know, maybe 
you know, in my 20s, I was super gung-ho, but now, like, in, you know, I'm getting older, and the Steadicam's getting heavy. Every year, that thing gets heavier, and I'm not kidding. You know, it's a great tool, but it's it's a young man's game. You yeah. know, I'm still doing it, so I'm not, like, you know, I'm not, eh, now, but it, you know. I hear every you. Year, Catches up to you. I hear you. I hear you. Now, you've been all over the world. Uh, what was your favorite location to shoot? Oh, wow. Um, I really enjoy Spain. Um, I did a movie in, like, the beginning of my career called Americano. Mm-hmm. And in Pamplona. And it was Dennis Hopper. It was Joshua Jackson. Um, Leonore Varela was in it. Uh, and we basically went and shot during the Running of the Bulls Festival. Wow. Um, it was just an amazing thing to be a part of, you know, I don't condone bullfighting at all. I don't like it. I think it's terrible. I, I love animals, yeah. um, but that's their culture. And that's the thing that we were there. You know, we were there shooting in that festival. We didn't really shoot much of the bullfight. We shot a little bit of it. It was, it was rough, but like the food was amazing. The people were amazing. You know, just a couple hours away, I go surfing over in San Sebastian, you know, like on the weekends and, we went to all these different cool locations and saw the, you know, up in the mountains of Pyrenees. It was just, it was wonderful. And so, you know, I, I really, really enjoy going, like, I like Spain a lot. I'm, I think it's fantastic. What would you say was the uh, location that really kicked your ass? Like, was the harshest working conditions on you? Hatchet 3 was awful. Um, now, Hatchet it, 3, you said you, you actually shot it in Louisiana, right? We shot it in the swamp. Yeah. Like, in the body. Yeah. My genius idea was I want to make sure that we can expand the look. I no matter where you look, I want this movie to really to be like we are in Louisiana. We're in the swamps. That's why the whole thing was just totally there. And you know, it was rough. People got freaking, you know, deep poisoning. We had alligators come up to the crappy, you know, at nighttime, you know, we had like Lightning would shut us down. So, like, again, going back to the, I don't have any time for any kind of mess-ups. Well, a storm comes in, and lightning starts. You have to shut all the generators off. Yeah. So wait for a storm to pass. So we'd just be sitting in the middle of the swamp in pitch dark because you have to turn all the electricity off, waiting for the storm to pass. And I'm amazed we actually – I'm amazed we actually uh, finished that movie. <laughs> and, then, and also, like, I think maybe Louisiana is probably my, the harshest place that I've ever shot – so I did a movie called Battle Los Angeles as a camera operator oh, yeah. in Shreveport and in Baton Rouge, mostly. We shot a little bit out in California, just like some beach stuff and mm-hmm. all that. But my God, that was absolutely the most horrific heat. We had this freeway set and it was just like nonstop gunfire. I have scars like like Ooh. from brass going into my knee pads and like and like burning me while we're shooting. Like the explosions, it was just so hot and miserable. And it was like a four-month movie, something like that, and it Ooh. just non-stop. Just, they had this dust, this bone dust. They, they were burning oil to make the fog that would come in at the beginning. So they yeah. had these giant, like, Ritter fans, and they had these big, huge tubs of oil that they were burning, and then Ritter fans would just all be lined up and blowing all this oil in, like, this burning oil. Not like, like, like a... Uh, I know what you mean, yeah. Mineral oil. We yeah. were burning, like, yeah. food oil. Like, mineral oil that uh, they're like, oh, yeah, it's totally safe for you to ingest this. You'll be fine. And literally, by the end of the day, you'd go back to your room, and I would send pictures to my wife. and be like, look at me. I'm like, covered in black bone dust, dirt, and then this mineral oil. I could feel it in my lungs, and I just felt heavy. Like, every single day, I was like, oh. Oh, just man. It was, it was absolutely it, – that was – I think Louisiana might be – one of the hardest places to shoot at. But I, I mean, I love the food. I and like you know, the food. you're not the first person, the director that I've heard say that. Dude, 
it's so hard. But it's cool. And, and, and look, the aesthetics of it, like you shoot something like Interview with a Vampire. For, you know, you go to New Orleans, that whole vibe there is absolutely oh, wonderful. Yeah. It's such a great thing. I love the look of it. Like, like there's some wonderful places, some really neat looking stuff. But you can't go shoot it in wintertime. Or that little bit of time it's actually cold there. <laughs> <laughs> now, we only have time for one more question. This hour just flew by. What do you attribute the cult following that the Hatchet movies have? Uh, that make it so appealing and it does have a big cult following uh you know victor crawley what do you think it is what do you think is the magic behind the hatchet series that adam came up with i mean honestly let's be real it's all it's just it's it's movies with murder and killing and you come up with it's like what makes friday the 13th so cool the kills, the kills. exactly what makes you know what makes michael myers so cool the, the kills, kills. I mean, yeah, there's a cool story there, you know, yeah. but but really people are going to these movies to see something like The Kills and just go, whoa, you know, and I think that's really the same. It's just a formula that you follow, which it works. You you want to do cool kills and a little bit of comedy can go a long way, too. Mm-hmm. And I think that's that's what really boils down to is just trying to trying to, like, combine those things and do it right. And the horror, the horror fan base is so big, you know. And it's just people want to see blood and gore. Yeah. And if you do it right, you do some funny stuff or do some really impressive kills. You're always going to have a fan base. Exactly. You know? And it's a lot of fun. Even shooting the things are so much fun, especially when they go right. And that's why I think Hatchet was so great. Like I said, from the, at the beginning, it was a great balance of humor and a hell of a, a huge body count. I mean, come on, let's admit, even in the Friday the 13th movies, the Halloween, you don't get body counts in the 30s and 40s like Victor Crawley does. <laughs> yeah, that, that, and that was the main thing we were always said. We got to kill as many people as we can. And every time we did the, the, the movies, we tried to up the ante as much as possible. Like, really just try to throw in as many kills as possible that you could get in there because we yeah. were just always trying. We knew there was going to be like people counting. Yeah. You know? yeah. People killed this one or like, you know, the, the, the creative kills that we did. Like, the, the whole kill that we did with Schneiderman. Uh, in part three, that was my idea. I wanted to like do what we did to him, which is, I remember everybody go, that's kind of mean. I'm like, yeah, but it's kind of awesome. You know, when we actually like rip his arms off, he gets hit by, impaled by a flaming piece of wood, his arms ripped off, and then he's drowned in mud. Yeah, yeah. And I see uh, what I remember is as Victor is uh, like pulls it out of him, and he's like, fuck, as he's dying, he's like, fuck you, or something like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. That you was might, awesome. Hey, if you know you're getting your arm ripped off, you might as well start cursing. If you're gonna exactly. Die, right? You're going to go. You're going to go. Might as well go out in style. BJ. You either curse or you can pray. you got two options. <laughs> BJ, this has been an absolute fascinating hour, man. Thank you so much yeah, for joining us. Uh, yeah. I've Thanks learned to all a who's lot. listened to us jabber on. Thank you to people who are listening to it. Absolutely. I appreciate it. Absolutely. The fans love it. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, looking forward to seeing a lot more of your work. Uh, any other final thoughts you want to share before we go? Just uh, keep loving the movies, guys. And if exactly. you really want to be, a, you know, if you want to go work on movies, don't think you can't. It's all accessible. You can always do whatever you want. You just got to go make it happen. You know, exactly. and that's that's really, you know, a lot of people get discouraged and they and they go, I don't know how to do it. Uh, you know, you know what? Pack your shit. Go to where all the filming's going on, like Atlanta, Georgia, right now. Exactly. I'll tell you that. Go yeah. there because that's where the movies are being made right mm-hmm. now. And uh, get yourself on a crew. It's all attainable. And I'm telling you, it's a great lifestyle. You know, you work hard. It's a hard job. It's hard hours. But I'll tell you what, it's 
You get in there any way you can, even as a PA. 100%. You know, most people say, yeah, I did a bunch of faxing today. I faxed a bunch of copies. Where we come home, we say, yeah, we blew up a building today. It was kind of rad. I mean, (laughs) come on. There's no funner job than that. There's none. Anyway, thank you so much, guys. Thank you so much for tuning in. Uh, It's been a wonderful chat. Till tomorrow, guys, stay safe. On behalf of BJ and myself, stay walking. Good night. Thank you. Bye-bye.